This is the Permaculture Podcast, a listener-supported program. Because this show exists in the gift economy, from time to time we reach out to you as part of a fundraiser to pay our server costs and take care of the team. Right now we're in the middle of our winter to spring fundraiser. If you're able to, go to paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast or via the link in the show notes to contribute to that campaign. I also want to let you know that if you're looking for a permaculture design class but are unable to attend one in person, there's only one online course that I can personally recommend, and that's the one from Oregon State University, taught by Andrew Millison. In addition to being a past guest on the podcast, I studied with Andrew during my teacher training, and I really think that he is one of the best teachers that we have in the community, and you'd be well served by studying permaculture with him. If you're interested in taking this course, with spring classes starting on April 3rd, Listeners of the show can receive a 5% discount and support the podcast at the same time by using the promo code SMPERM5%. Find out more and register today by using the link in the show notes at thepermaculturepodcast.com. You're listening to episode 1710, The Art of Frugal Hedonism. Is it possible for us to live an enjoyable, self-indulgent life while remaining thrifty and at the same time not overtaxing Earth's resources? It's a big question that sounds like it's a lot to accomplish, and also too good to be true. However, if you follow what Annie Racer Rowland, today's guest, suggests in her book The Art of Frugal Hedonism, the answer rings out as a resounding yes. We can have our cake, and a healthy environment too. By making choices that lead us towards what we desire, as we discover what holds us in rapt attention, and find the true pleasures of our lives. During the conversation today, Annie uses her own life, as an artist, long-distance hiker, and forager, to model what we can expect by embracing this way of living. The results lead to a life rich in time with those we care about and full of opportunities to indulge ourselves, be that with concerts, ongoing education, as well as simple luxuries. You might say that this is minimalism with a permaculture twist. So let's get started with Annie, and I'll join you again afterwards. Annie, could you give us a bit of your biography and background, how you came to do what you're doing, and then we can talk about the art of frugal hedonism. Sure. I started off very much as an artist and spent a good part of my 20s being a you know chaotic kind of party animal, trying to make lots of art of various kinds. But as I spent more and more time in the natural world, I just had this feeling mounting up that the complexity and beauty and moods of the natural world were so much more poignant than anything I could ever hope to make that it seemed more important to me to move towards spending my time in the natural world more preserving it so that everyone could do that (laughs) and really sinking into that form of beauty and complexity rather than trying to create my own things on pieces of paper that did a poor job of replicating what was out there. And so I became very interested in long-distance hiking and I became a gardener and those two kind of melded together and that I started to feel like it was absurd to be going for these huge multi-day walks and having to take all my food with me. So I became quite interested in foraging so that I could supplement my diet when I was going on hikes with forage foods. And that then led to 
me writing a book on the edible and medicinal weeds of Australia with my then partner, Adam Grubb, who already knew a lot about that stuff and through the course of our relationship was teaching me all sorts of things. And then we sort of continued on that learning journey together of learning about more and more feral foods that we could eat. And so that sort of that element of wildness within a modern living setup became a big interest to me as that emerged. And in this time I'd done a permaculture course and studied horticulture formally and started working at various plant nurseries and doing a few permaculture designs and growing a lot more of my own food. I was very serious at a point there. I probably pulled back a little bit. In fact, I pulled back at the point where I realized that I was growing so much food, I didn't have any excuse to go <laughs> to go foraging the, the alleyways of Melbourne because it's a huge pleasure here to walk out and walk down all the back alleyways of streets. We've got amazing back alleyways in the northern suburbs of Melbourne where you can pick all this fallen fruit every summer and it forms a huge part of your food supply. And once I realized I was growing so much fruit that I had no need to go doing that, that was a real sadness to me because it was taking this whole um, chance element and this sort of windfall pleasure out of how I was eating. So that was an interesting changing point. And then I suppose as an extension of that, that contemplation of how we can live modern Western lifestyles and yet not lose our our sense of connectedness and uh, our sense of vigour and tenacity and self-reliance, then I started thinking about a lot of the themes that have come into this second book, The Art of Frugal Hedonism, and that's where I am now. And I love just the title alone because of what it reveals about what you find within the book and... It really got me thinking about it because of the way in which myself and many other permaculture practitioners are really paring down our lives in regards to our financial capital and living situations moving towards kind of a, a modern minimalism of sorts that in other ways then allows us to have very indulgent lifestyles, that it's not about having a lot of stuff, it's about having the right stuff that allows us to live a more full and enjoyable life. Absolutely. And I mean... I think that if you had to extract a key theme from the book, it's about acknowledging that there is a point where having more is a poverty unto itself because there's the tipping point where what you are striving to own and what you do own or what you consume requires more energy from you than the pleasure it delivers in return. And that's that's a fairly modern kind of realisation to have to come to because there's been no other point in history where where we have had such a hyperabundance of stuff and where we have been so wealthy and so exposed to so many forms of convenience that we would want to turn any of it down to feel happier and more content and healthier we've you know we've had we've had an entirety of human history where to get as much food as you can and to get as much comfort and convenience and as you can is still always going to be a good thing so it's 
it's not surprising at all that as a culture that we're having these sort of teething problems of going, well, more is always better, more is always better, of course, because we're really well indoctrinated into that mentality from millennia of um, operating in that way. But there really is a point where you feel less wealthy by how much your stuff harasses you and how much the need to earn money to buy it harasses you. And if you can narrow down the things that really deliver lots of happiness but don't require as much work or as much maintenance or as much just general looking after, then you're actually going to feel wealthier. And I know that, yeah, that I feel really quite affluent most of the time, despite the fact that I live on a quarter of the Australian average expenditure, and that's for a man, woman and child, so it would be even higher for an adult. Adam and I, for the purpose of this book, kept budgets for the first time in our lives which is another interesting thing about being quite frugal is that it's, there's so much of an association with it that you are always thinking about money and you're always counting your pennies, whereas we actually found it quite hysterically funny that it was the first time in our life we'd ever kept a budget because we'd never needed to because when you have essentially low consumption habits and you just don't fling money around very much, you tend to always have enough money to get by as long as you do a bit of work here and there and kind of look after all your social connections so that lots of free things come to you for the free things that you're putting out there. So we kept budgets and we found out that each of us were spending about a quarter of the Australian average and that's without even trying really and we both feel like there's nothing we really do without that counts, you know. That's even going occasionally, well, I want to go out for an insanely glamorous restaurant meal or I'm going to, you know, take this $700 two-week course with this educator that I really want to learn something from or I'm going to take a hot air balloon flight because I've always wanted to get that perspective on the world. It's not even this really sparse lifestyle of of no luxuries and no pleasures but it's those fundamental habits of really never wasting anything and of generally being quite self-reliant and cooking for yourself a lot and expecting to live in humble accommodation and so on and then you then you can do those truly luxurious things like like go see an amazing stage show or whatever it is that is your personal love And that's what I like about your book and many of the other conversations that are happening these days is there's this tenor or thread of meeting people where they're at and that these kinds of decisions and choices that we make are our own to work through, but that there are others out there who are kind of modeling these ideas that then can provide the support necessary to make these kinds of changes. I know for myself, when I first started walking down this road and really reducing, there was a period where it felt like a deep contraction and like I was missing a lot of things. And then as that stuff kind of went away, that I was able to dive more into my social relationships and find a really deep meaning in those connections with others. I'm not sure if that is all about these transitions and wanting to make these choices consciously as a permaculture practitioner or whether age has a bit to do with it now that I'm in my late 30s and having a bit of perspective on my own mortality in some ways. But it's still interesting to watch how much richer life can become 
when we walk down this path on our own and then find the others who can support us along the way? I think it's hard to overestimate how social we are as a species. I mean, I'm, I'm naturally quite hermetic type person. I've, I like to spend a lot of time alone and I'm, I'm very individualistic. Despite that, I'm quite extroverted, but even within that tendency to be quite a solitary person, I know that the friendships I do have and the social connections I do have are phenomenally important. And it doesn't matter how much we might believe in living a certain way or have a certain set of values, we feel deeply uncomfortable in lots of ways if we don't feel like there's other people sharing those with us. And that was part of the motivation for writing the book is that I am completely realistic about the fact that lots of people who read this book will already have had many of the thoughts in it about being more mindful, about lowering their consumption, about living a bit more ferociously and uh, feeling that self-reliance that can help cut down existential crises and <laughs> all of those sort of modern afflictions that do often come from a, a lack of sense of why you're doing what you do. And yet I decided the book was still useful because it's not enough to just be there in your own head saying, I believe in living this way. I feel like this would be the right way to live. I think this is good for me. This is where I want to be headed. You need other human voices piping in and saying, you want to do this because of this, and I want to do it too because of this. And it, it makes us feel better to do this thing, and here's why, and here's how, because we have this torrent of mass culture coming at us all the time telling us other ways to live that you can't just – announce to yourself at singular points how you want to be. You need other voices joining in to back you up and you need places you can turn to, whether it be conversations with friends or a book that helps to really encapsulate a lot of the behaviours that you would like to have be part of your life, to go back to again and again to help spell out to you how you want to exist as a human being. Because it's tough. It's tough to be good. It's tough to be your best self. It's something that we've lost a bit through religion is there was a lot of problems with paternalistic religions, but they did have this beautiful kindness that there was forums in everyday life that helped remind you how you wanted to be. People would go back to holy texts or they'd go back to church services or they'd look at religious paintings. And every time they saw one of those things that were integrated into daily life, it would help them remember this is the good way to be as a human being. There's all these other things grabbing at me, distracting me for how I really want to be, but this is the good way to be. And I think there's there's no sort of support structure for having environmental concerns or for having deep niggling feelings about how you want to live more joyously or more wildly. So anything you can do to help, like have a book that, that you can turn back to or have friends you can have conversations about those things with is really important. What kind of a support structure did you have walking down this road? Was it just you and Adam doing this or did you ha also have like some folks you were co-housing with or family members or others 
who were like helping you along as you were doing this? Um, that's an interesting question. Definitely various friends, but I've always had a bit of a allergy to just surrounding myself with like-minded people as well, which does make life both more interesting and more challenging. And perhaps as a hangover from my artist days, lots of my friends prioritise other things in their life apart from their thinking about their ethics or their consumption. And so I did feel quite lonely often in trying to live in a different way. For a while, you know, I was working in a fashion shop about 15 years ago, I guess. And even then, because I have always been very frugal by nature, even then I would, you know, come to work at this glamorous fashion shop and everyone else would be going and spending $30 a day on takeaway coffees and bottles of water and sandwiches. And I would have walked for 45 minutes along the creek to get to work and have my bag full of jars of homemade food and a homemade coffee for the morning and a homemade tea for the afternoon and my water bottle. And and they gave me the nickname Swamp Girl for a while there because of all my jars with, with various concoctions floating about in them, I think. But I'm stubborn enough that it didn't really bother me. Plus, I knew that the fact that I did that was both keeping me healthier and meaning that I had hadn't produced any packaging in what I was eating that day and that I was able to eat from ethical sources that were going to keep the world more the kind of place that I want to live with for maximum pleasure in the long term and that I was saving piles of money that has meant that I've always just been able to go off on hikes or adventures or go, no, I'm not going to work much, I'm going to write a book for a couple of years I mean, people often just think about how not spending money or not consuming things is is a penance or a, a martyrdom, but it's a liberty more than that. I mean, above and beyond anything, not spending much money is a liberty because it completely frees you up from that terrible a weight of having debt or financial stress, but it also gives you the option to say, well, I'm going to work really flexible hours and work on projects that I really care about or I'm going to go off adventuring. Um, and to me, being able to do that is so much more worthwhile than the pleasure of buying a takeaway sandwich instead of bringing some home-cooked roast vegetables. Like it doesn't – there's not even a competition. I'd rather put in that little bit more effort into looking after my needs in a, a cheap and thrifty and caring way and have all of that liberty than, than have ultimate and endless convenience. It's interesting to hear that because the last several weeks as I've been exploring my own life and lifestyle, and one of the big things that I think about and speak to is about living intentionally and making choices about what it is we're going to do in our lives, with our lives, how we spend money, really a, a holistic approach to living by actively engaging in the choices we make. And I found that even though on paper, financially, I'm as poor as I've ever been in my lifetime. Yeah. Yet, because you were saying earlier, you live on about a quarter of the Australian average. 
Yeah, that's right. I'm at about a little under a third of the American average. But in working through this, I realized that I'm substantially more free than almost anyone I know with how I want to use my time, where I want to go, what I want to do. And though I can't do everything, I can do just about anything that I might want. All because of the choices that I've made to reduce the amount of material goods that I own, the size of the space that I live in, which I share with a roommate, and things like that. By doing so, it really has become this act of liberty that just by living this way seems so much more proactive in every moment of my day-to-day life. Absolutely. And it is... It is sort of hilarious that you can you can take this option of fighting for for various liberties and better working conditions and so on and all of that is completely legitimate and necessary within all sorts of contexts but you can also buy yourself a lot of liberty by by being a really modest consumer and I don't think the power of that is recognized very often one of the aspects that i mean we wanted to write a book that was a that was a book with an ecological message but didn't have the morality and the quote unquote good goodness of caring about saving the world as its motivation because i think people have got so tired of hearing those phrases at this point but that they're a bit deaf and dumb to them and I think there is so much pleasure to be had in living a more alive lower consumption life that it's a very legitimate angle to approach it from but I'm not sure if the book spelled out as much as it could have the fact of there being sort of single stage and multi-stage rewards in terms of that frugality and the hedonism that are both there embodied in the title. Because there's ones that are very single stage, that are as as single stage as consumer culture is. So within consumer culture you say, I want something sweet, I'm going to buy a chocolate sundae. That was a single stage, very gratifying hedonism. And within frugal hedonism, there's also single-stage hedonisms where you're like, I want something pleasurable, I'm going to go lie in the glorious sunshine or take my shoes off and take a walk splashing in the mud in this rainstorm or I'm going to go to bed at 9 o'clock and have a 10-hour sleep where I can dream all those dreams that I feel like I've been aching to dream. There's a lot of single-stage hedonisms within frugality as well. But there's a lot of multi-stage hedonisms too that are more often more connected to the ecological side of things and those are the things along the line or lines of I want the pleasure for the rest of my life of being able to go swim in a river that is within an hour's walk of me So I'm going to engage in these other behaviours in terms of how I consume and what I consume that will help it make more likely that 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 pleasure is available to me for the rest of my life. And that's a longer-term kind of hedonism. And I'm not sure if that was spelled out quite concretely enough in the book. People that have been interviewing me about it so far, they're so, journalists are so excited to, to jump on the 
the seeming oxymoron of the the hedonism term that they they just want it to be all about immediate pleasures of frugality as compared to immediate pleasures of consumption but a lot of it is about saying i mean i care deeply about about the natural world staying in good health but it's not out of some knee-jerk morality it's not even out of some great generosity lots of it's selfish i want it to be there so that i can keep enjoying it hedonistically for the rest of my life because i love what's there and it's the greatest font of pleasure apart from the company of other creatures that there is for me to draw in this world is to take huge lungfuls of of electrically fresh air or to go climbing up a hill and watch a burning sunset over an ocean that I know there's creatures living and doing all sorts of different things in rather than some fetid, dead, overpolluted ocean. So, I mean, it's, there's, yeah, there's big version hedonism in there too. Within that, I think there's, a, there's even a middle ground sort of hedonism, which is the gap in between saying, well, I might feel tired right now and driving my kid to school rather than walking there sounds a lot more convenient and relaxing and pleasurable, but that I know that within the next six months, the next year, the next five years, that the more times I make that decision, uh, the less interesting times I'm going to spend with my child, seeing that, that funny thing that we saw as we walk down the street on the way to school, the less fit we'll both be, the less resilient against extremes of weather we will both be, the more money we will have spent on paying for that car and the petrol to get us to school. And so there's, yeah, there's all sorts of layers of hedonism and operation there, the really immediate stuff and that more middle ground, my life and how fit I am and how connected I am and how skilled am I and how content am I in a month and then the bigger ecological potential hedonism. And I would have liked to make that the distinction between those a little bit better on, in the book on reflection. And in working my way through the book, I don't know necessarily that it needs to have a better distinction or more focus in that way. For me, I found the book as a whole to be a very good introduction to these ideas and the ways in which we can engage in a meaningful way. Because of the way that each chapter is written... And the way that the table of contents is laid out, you can just open up the contents, find something that appeals to you that day, and then go read the two to six pages on a particular idea, and then move immediately into taking that and making it a part of your life. It's great to hear that, and we're hearing that quite a bit. It really was meant to be a, a bridging book as much as a book to help you know, shore up the, the resolutions and the thinking of people who are already thinking in these terms. We wanted it to also do double duty as that was quite accessible to a mainstream public who possibly haven't thought about lots of this stuff because that goes hand in hand with it not being the the heavy cell, it's the happy cell instead. It's the saying, don't think about consuming less for the sake of doing the right thing or protecting your bank balance or, or saving the environment. Think about doing it as a, a way to make yourself happier. And that is obviously makes it a much more competitive angle to compete with mainstream advertising than a moralistic position. And so for that reason, then we really wanted to make a book that was, yeah, acted as a, on an introductory level as well. 
helping you stay true to the values you've already got. And people have been saying that they dip around like that and um, we've, we've had some fabulous feedback actually of people saying that they sit over breakfast and read a chapter to each other every morning. In one case, someone sent photos of them sitting in their chicken coop reading it with their goats while having their morning cup of tea. They read one chapter every morning and there was photographs of the, the goat trying to eat the corner of the book, which I adored. But more more dramatic feedback as well of people saying that, you know, that they read a particular chapter and it triggered a conversation with a partner or the entire family where they decided to really rethink some of their foundational life structures from where they lived, um, how big their house was, where they spent their money each month, um, what they did recreationally whether they needed a car or not or a second car. And it's been really interesting and rewarding to get that kind of feedback when I wasn't sure if because it's such a a playful book, if people might treat it as only playful and as something to read as a a pleasant thought provoker but not as something to create serious life life change, whereas I, I very much like the fact that apparently you can be quite witty and playful and still provoke Uh, profound change. (laughs) It's a good sign for humanity. And I find sometimes that communicating in that way is much more subversive and successful in helping someone through something like this than it is to kind of to bludgeon them with the book, if you will. Absolutely. I mean, it's partly just a case of modeling like you were referring to before is no one wants to go be part of a lifestyle that they feel is dour. And if you can write a book coming from this position and saying, well, this is how I live, but I feel very playful about life, then it's just on that basis it's going to be a lot more likely that people go, well, maybe if I lived like that, I'd still be allowed to feel playful about life, which already puts a tick in lots of people's boxes because I think lots of people do get really worried that it's been so well created as an illusion by advertising culture that, uh, frivolity and spontaneity go hand in hand with buying things, that it's all about that. I think we have a, a shot of a billboard in the book that's like, uh, you only live once, just buy the damn shoes or something. And it's, again, it's that association between like seizing the day, living for now, consuming to, to prove that that's how you live to yourself. And we also mentioned a, a bit of how in, you know, blockbuster movies and action films that there's there's this sort of intense glamour of seeing really expensive things being wasted and that the the cool guys don't care about blowing up phenomenally expensive cars and throwing expensive mobile phones over their shoulders and are always jumping on and off jets and there's this real association that that popular culture has built up around absolutely thoughtless consumption and being stylish which there's no integral association that needs to exist between those two things if anything it's in real life it's when you are entrapped by needing to work to support a spending lifestyle that may look occasionally spontaneous and frivolous but that keeps you pinned down and keeps you attached to a repetitiveness 
as we've said already, there's, there's nothing that allows more spontaneity and style than not having to give a shit too much about doing what the world wants you to do because you've, you've created enough autonomy to get away with that. When writing this book, was there anything that you found that really surprised you? Yes. There's one thing that possibly not even in, it emerged a bit in writing the book, but it's emerged even more in talking to a couple of groups about it and about their responses to it. I hadn't realised how much it feels like we have been taught to use our consumption patterns as a bit of a replacement for having social standing and reputation that we could earn in other ways. You think about your average medieval peasant perhaps or even, you know, your average uh, itinerant worker or member of a, a small rural town in the 30s and who they were and how much people respected and valued them for the most part was not determined by where they went out to eat and what kind of car they drove or how they dressed or the nuances if you want to start looking at really fashionable culture of whether they wear that kind of jeans versus that kind of jeans, which shows a certain sort of understanding of exactly what is is right and on and now. Or if you want to get more cliched about it, about, you know, what kind of decor your house has. And I think there's been a really big shift as there's been such a vast number of consumer options become available to us of having the sense that if we if we're not buying the right kind of things and going out to the right kind of cultural events or eating at the right places or that even, you know, that we've tried the right food that's currently fashionable, that we don't have a full identity, that that's a big part of what we use to create our identities. And I found it fascinating to realise how much when you consume less you have to create social value for yourself by who you are and how you behave. And that's both in terms of you need to be a good person, you need to be a reliable person, and you need to be a person that helps other people out because you rely on that social capital to come back to you. You need to make sure that if you borrow some tools from someone that you give them back in a timely fashion and in good shape and that you've oiled them and so on because you want to be able to borrow those tools again because you don't just go, I need a shovel, I'm going to go down to Kmart and buy a shovel. You go, well, no, 10 people within my immediate social neighbourhood that I know have a shovel, I'm going to borrow one. But you also have to be an interesting person on some level and that sounds probably terrifying to lots of people because we are culturally neurotic about our own self-worth in lots of cases. But in a way, it's a beautiful challenge to go, no, this, this brain and body that I have and this heart is my social standing. People will want me at their dinner party or will want to go on that trip with me or will want to do me that favour because I'm interesting company and I make the effort to think of interesting things to say or I, or even if it's not about being interesting, it could be that you're being funny or, or being a great listener or that you're 
just a bit loopy in a way that is charming or that you make a point of always remembering fascinating books that you've read to tell someone that's going to care about those. All those ways in which our skills or our knowledge or our playfulness or our care of the humans around us make us valuable to have within other people's lives should be what is is making us feel like we have an identity. And to be challenged to constantly bring those things alive so that you are worth something is actually a beautiful thing, I think. I don't think it's a taxing thing that people need to be scared of. And I had never really thought until writing the book about that side of, of consuming less. It's like on some basic level I have an awareness that I have to be an interesting guest at a dinner party because I'm not going to be invited there because I brought the fanciest dip from the the hipster delicatessen on the corner to do that. I'm going to be being invited for what I have to say or who I am. And I think that's I think that's a nice challenge. You remind me of two things. And one is that if I'm going to show up somewhere and the people who I'm going to be visiting with, if they happen to see my car and it's a little beat up or a little weird and they're going to judge me for that, then maybe those aren't the kinds of people who I want to hang around with. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if you have them in the States, but there's um there's bumper stickers you can get in Australia that say something like, uh, my car is is filthy because I like to save water or because I care about saving water. I think they got released when we're having a 10-year drought here. And I've often thought that it would be good to have like a massive version of that you could put on your house that would say, (laughs) my house is daggy because I don't care about spending money on decor. Just so people know it's not an accident. It's like, no, this is an intentional stance. I give a shit about more interesting things than having like a latest kitchen fit out. Yeah, and I think that when you have more time and the availability to do it, you can pursue your interests more. And then when you are that guest at a dinner party, you have more to talk about than just small talk or a job or these other normal kinds of basic topics that you can get into what it's like to walk down the streets there in the suburbs and to pick fallen food or about what it was like to write a budget for the first time in your life as a result of writing this book. Or like in my own life, I have this running kind of tagline of ideas of like the different roles that I fill. And it's like storyteller, wizard, swordsman, philanthropist, arms dealer. It's a fun kind of way to to get things started. There's a a lot of aspects within living a a cheaper, more self-reliant lifestyle that function like that too, where it's a bit of a self-affirming circle is that by spending less money, you get to have more liberty, you get to have more interests, you become a better conversationalist, so you need to spend less money because you can dine out and who you are, not the the price of the bottle of wine that you bought with you. Or that, you know, by spending less money and maybe walking more and bicycling more places to get around instead of using a car or doing gardening, then you will be fitter, probably have, you know, even if you're still a size 16 or something, if you're fitter, you'll have more muscles, you'll carry yourself better, you can wear slightly cheaper clothes and look better in them because you've got that good bearing. So there's a lot of things like that 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 they're self-perpetuating circles. 
where the more you do those frugal things, the more they make it easier to do them. I've really enjoyed our conversation today, Annie, and I would love to spend more time digging into this, but with our time zone differences, I need to go to bed soon, and you have the rest of your day to enjoy. Indeed. So, to draw this conversation to a close, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? Uh, I would just really... Even before cutting down any paid-for consumption, I would love to have every human being, including myself, just taking less of what is really succulent in our daily lives for granted. Like it's, There's just so much to enjoy. The number of times I've gotten into that ridiculous monkey brain human space of going oh there's this problem and there's that problem and there's this one and then stopping and going I'm actually really happy there's nothing that needs dramatically changing and there is so much pleasure available to us that we don't even bother to heed every single day and the starting place is to to heed the pleasures that we already do have because there's no better inoculant than feeling like you already have a life that is rich in pleasure to stop you spending on ridiculous things that you don't need or that aren't going to make you any happier. Well, thank you for that, and thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, Scott. And that was Annie Racer Rowland, author of The Art of Frugal Hedonism. You can find out more about her and the book at frugalhedonism.com. If you're in Australia, you can order a copy directly from Annie via that website. And if you're in the United States, it's being distributed by Chelsea Green Publishing. One of the qualities that I like when reading something right now that this book shares with others that I've rather enjoyed is that you can pick it up and really just start reading anywhere. You don't have to read cover to cover. You can pick a chapter and go because it really becomes more of a toolkit that we can use to discover and explore these ideas. And as I said to Annie during the interview, you read a couple of pages and you have an idea of a change that you can make in your life, something that you can do to begin down this road. And after having lived so intentionally for so long, the art of frugal hedonism kind of gives me a space to step back from that, to breathe a little, and to try some new things, to find those things that really care for me while also continuing this work, letting go of some things that no longer serve me, while inviting the opportunity to live life a little bit more. So as I wrap up this episode, a couple of days before the release date, I'm taking an invitation from a friend to go tour a museum and see some of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, the works of Waterhouse and Rossetti, and some other art that was foundational to my life because of an early fascination with the Arthurian legends, in particular, the Victorian expression of them, and the romantic envisioning of the characters from those legends. And I know some of you are friends of mine on Facebook, and so you've seen the questions that I post every day over the last several weeks about what's your favorite drink, or what is your favorite book, as we learn more about each other and explore life. And I wonder what we can do through those connections to be a little bit more self-indulgent, more hedonistic, while getting deeper and more rewarding relationships. And that's kind of where my mind is on this cold Friday morning here in Pennsylvania as we continue to 
dig out and recover from Stella. We got around 16 inches of snow where I am, and around 18 or so in the valley where my children are, and so we've been playing in the snow fort and digging paths and exploring. If you follow the show on Instagram, at Permaculture Podcast, you'll see that one of the recent posts is a picture of my children sitting in their snow fort that was built by one of our neighbors with his plow as he cleared the snow from the driveway. What will you be doing in the days to come to take care of yourself, to indulge, and to enjoy? I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. Give me a call, 717-827-6266. Drop something in the post, the Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. But thank you for being a part of this journey and a part of my life. Until the next time, spend each day creating the world that you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.